This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Roger Teal. Dr. Roger Teal is a life-transforming speaker, a gifted community builder, and a global spiritual leader. He has a Doctor of Religious Science degree and currently serves as Senior Minister and Spiritual Director at the Mile High Church in Denver to over 30,000 members and friends. Dr. Roger Teal is the author of the book, This Life is Joy, Discovering the Spiritual Laws to Live More Powerfully, Lovingly, and Happily, in which he shows how every moment, experience, and person can be an opening for our soul. This episode of Insights at the Edge was recorded in the Sounds True studio with Roger and I face-to-face. In this episode, we spoke about the journey of opening your heart, allowing the walls of protection to crumble, and how our strength lies in our vulnerability. We talked about portals of transformation, including the unlikely portals of judgment and disease. We also talked about Roger's knowing of a beingness that transcends physical death. Here's my conversation with Dr. Roger Teal. Welcome, Dr. Roger. I hope I can call you that. Oh, just call me Roger. Just call you Roger. Okay. Mm-hmm. And thank you for coming and being in person with us here in the Sounds True studio. I'm deeply grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I know, Roger, that you have a Doctor of Religious Science degree, and at the same time that your work goes beyond and has evolved beyond your original training Mm -hmm. in science of mind. And yet, I still feel that you're the go-to person, if you will, to help me understand a bit about science of mind and some of the ideas that I've found a little confusing or even, I might say a little boldly, a little off-putting. And so if that's okay, if we can talk about that and just start there. Sure, Tammy. Sure. Okay. So one of the impressions I have about science of mind, and, and even some of the work that's come from people who are trained in science of mind and gone beyond it, is that there's this tremendous emphasis on positivity, being positive. And here, the title of your new book, This Life is Joy, doesn't get any more positive than that. (laughs) And so I wonder, where does all the negative go? And how do you deal with that? Well, in in talking about this life is joy, I'm, I'm talking about something deep within us that I feel is a quality of being, uh, if you will, a quality of the divine, a deep, deep essence. And, and I'm making the distinction between the surface elements of life. Um, you know, the Buddha said life is suffering. 
And at the surface level of our life and our daily human experience, it is. There's times of pain and we have the roller cycle, uh, the roller coaster cycle of, of ups and downs, yeah. pain and pleasure. And I'm, I'm calling us to something deep and eternal, um, a deep joy within us, which is also really, in a sense, the deep essence of life within us. So I'm not denying that there's the light and the dark and the shadow, and, and I'm not denying that there's the pleasure and the pain at, at the more surface levels of human experience. Yeah. And, and what I also have experienced in my life is that through working at the inner level of my heart and at the inner level of, of more of the truth of me, that that's given me the wherewithal to deal better with all the, the, the things, the exigencies of life at the yeah. surface of life. Yeah. So that gets us started into that area. And I think when we talk about the science of mind, which was my heritage and still is, is really kind of what I help people with, but over years of meditation and inner work, my life and my spiritual uh, life has, has gone to so many other dimensions and working with other teachers in the world and in, uh, that yeah. I've been privileged to be with. It's, it's become that's like home base, but then there's so much more. And, and I think just in the positivity, it's helped people at least have a sense that there's something bigger about them than what they will ever face in their life. Now, I think that it depends on the teacher. It depends on where a student is. Sometimes it can be kind of a Pollyanna type positivity, if not watched out, if not um, cautious. Yeah. But what I'm also, but what I also think is the deeper truth is that that there's kind of a, a lifestyle available to us of, of of putting roots down into something deeper. I call it deeper roots. And there's a little bit of my book where uh, I talk about a, a time when I was troubled in my life, and I, I went to the, our mountains here in Colorado. And I just laid on a couple of rocks and looked up and, and I began to meditate upon the trees. And what magnificent, I was really kind of in a, an old growth kind of forest. And as I looked up at the trees, it was such a stunning thing. And what, it, what I realized is that none of that magnificence would have been possible if there weren't an equally amazing root system. And then I thought about my life. And I realized that I was felt buffeted at that time. I felt challenged and sad at that time. And and what it called me to was deeper roots. And uh, I went to a deeper level then. I did more meditation. I did more prayer work. I, I rather than just trying to assault the problems, I used them as a as a catalyst to go deeper. So I would hope that uh, the positive teachings are meant to affirm a person's being, as being superior to their conditions. Now, let's say somebody's listening and they have an intuition. You're right, Roger. At the core, at the heart, is this incredible love and joy. This life is joy. But at this moment, I feel terrible. Yeah. I feel like, you know, a pile of dog poo or whatever. <laughs> I don't feel... And so I can't access that. Mm-hmm. And positive thinking isn't going to help me right now. It would just feel phony. Mm-hmm. So what could you say that would be helpful? Well, I don't think that um, doing things in, in the intellectual level yeah. ever really will help in that situation. 
I think what's important is is to honor wherever we're at and and not make oneself wrong for that, not get dejected for being dejected. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that honoring, and then then for me, where where we go is to the heart. We have, and that was the big transformational moment for my life. Huh. Right out of a wounding that I write about early in the book, um, deeply painful at the time. Um, and I was in the skids and and tell us about that. What was the sure. what, what was the wounding? I it was uh, in my late twenties. I met a beautiful lady, fell in love, and we spent three years together. And at the end of our third year, we had uh, talked about becoming engaged after the holidays. And uh, we I would tell my congregation, and she would tell her family. She went to um, have her holidays with a half sister in Ohio. When she came back, I noticed she was um, quite different. And um, she was kind of distant. And I thought, well, she's tired and uh, just getting back into the flow of things. Yeah. Well, a couple of days later, uh, I came back to my town home after work, and everything of hers was gone, and a note was on the counter. And it simply said, our relationship is over. Please don't contact me. And I, I thought it was a joke, actually. And oh, my. So, of course, I did what yeah. she told me not to do. Yeah. And I called her, and her mother said, I'm sorry, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. But she says she's serious, and so I think you're just, I don't know what to tell you. You just yeah. got to deal with this. So, you know, I just um, I just dove down into a deep grief. I descended into a deep grief, a deep sadness. Um, I became depressed over several weeks. Um, all of this while trying to help people in their own lives as a spiritual leader. Um, I came, became more and more frustrated, and, and it devolved from there. I, a, a sort of a darkness within me emerged. I... Um, I got, had moments of tremendous anger. Even after a while, after a month or so, I can honestly say I was telling people I hated her. That she was, she was, oh, she was weird. She, she never quite right. And I, and I had a, I had a story going on about all of that. And all the while, I was suffering. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. Um, I, I was. Uh, it was, it was a very dangerous time for me. I stood the, the, the risk of losing just about everything that I cared about, my career and friends. and So one time I was out having a beer with a buddy, and a uh, close friend actually, and I launched into another tirade about this lady. And yeah. he said, you know, I've gotten a lot of good out of your teachings. You teach a lot of very powerful things. Ever thought of using them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really could have knocked him right off that stool there, yeah. but um, yeah. I knew he was right. Yeah, and I knew it was a call for me to look at that wounding in another way. You see, when we're in our dark times, we start into the story of who did what to whom, what's happening to me, what's yeah. impinging upon me, and that's a that's sort of a conceptualization that we have of it. But for me, in that moment, there was so much more. There were so many more gifts there, and I do believe that there are absolute gifts in our darkest of times. That's at least been my experience. Yeah, and so I began to to take a look. And I began to talk with people who could support me in, in looking beyond myself. And I, I think that's another recommendation in addition to embracing whatever the emotional energy is. Get some support to explore other perspectives on the situation. And so I did that. And one of the first discoveries was that, well, the relationship really wasn't what I was saying about it. That in truth, it was more characterized by dependency than real genuine connection and, and sharing, a mature, yeah. deepening relationship. And that, that wasn't easy to arrive at, but when I swallowed that bitter pill and owned what was so, um, 
that started momentum for me. And again, I think in dark times, sometimes there's something we're not willing to really see that is beckoning to us to see. That, that would be another tip for anyone listening. Maybe yeah. that's a productive line to explore. Is there something um, trying to get my attention through this? Yeah. So uh, I continued my search and continued my inner exploration. And the real shocking realization for me was, as I really got honest with myself, is that I had gotten into my early 30s with, and had even become a spiritual support person, a minister, a teacher, with largely a, a protected and closed heart. Hmm. And uh, so, so people could only get so close to me. Uh, and and I, I had the walls up. And uh, I managed relationships very carefully. It was a workaholic. And you couldn't really get very close. And so if a relationship was getting uncomfortable, I, there was a way I could just move it out of my space. And, and, and that that was characteristic of all of my relationships, significant relationships to that point, and most especially this one. And when I came to that, that stunning realization, the, the whole nature of the situation shifted. It was no longer about her. It was really no longer even about our relationship. I really got to see that I'd really called in that situation to become the most pivotal and transformational and defining moment of my life. And then I dived into that. Um, I just knew that that was a deep well of potential and transformation for me. And and I really want to pay tribute to another person I quote and and was supported by in this time. I went and worked with uh, a wonderful man named Brew Joy mm-hmm. and um, uh, did a couple of his two-week conferences. And in the first two-week conference, um, that midway, and there's other side stories I won't get into, but midway through that, um, I, I came up against the resistance. I came up against this this shadow side and this, this fear that I'd had. And um, through a time alone in the desert, I, I was able to experience that heart chakra flying open and a sense of the universality of this thing called love, that love was not just an experience to have, it's an energy that's a part of us. And, and um, I really got it that when it says in, in uh, Christian scripture, God is love, and they that dwell in love dwell in God and God in them, that that was absolutely true. And, and my whole sense of the divine went to a, an entirely more expansive level as, as, as a reality, omnipresent reality, not just out there but in me, and that there was another level of relating to the world, and, and it was transformational at every level of my being. And uh, that then allowed me to move forward in my life in the most wonderful of ways. So I guess another thing about the dark times yeah. the, the, that you introduced here is what's is the question, what's the larger story about this? There's the story of what happened and who did what to whom and to me or whatever. Then I, I got around eventually to asking what's the larger story, and the larger story was about the transformational opening of my heart. And so it was that I went from feeling broken to being broken open and, and it became a revelation of something more. And I believe that that's a theme. I believe that the experiences and the challenges of our lives always have soul-level gifts, if you will, gifts of, of, of invitations to becoming and to evolving. And so overall, while the journey can be extraordinarily difficult, and for me, one of the more difficult of my life, there's a positive 
possibility in that. So it's so much more than just positive superficial thinking. It's it's the positive acceptance that there's something in me that can weave something good and transformational out of this. I'm so curious about this heart-opening journey and heart-opening process. And I'm curious to know what you think helps people go further and further and further in opening their heart. I mean, it's one thing to, as you said, understand conceptually God is love. And it's a totally other thing to have all the walls actually crumble Mm -hmm. around our heart, all the barricades. So what do you think is really the keys to getting people to allow those walls to crumble? For me, the key is, is understanding how thoroughly acculturated and trained I have been, and it's something I still must emerge out of, always, I, how, how acculturated I have been to fear as the baseline for life. Hmm. Um, fearing in so many ways, and I'm not just talking about terror and panic, that ultimate level of fear. I'm talking about a low-grade fear as the platform for many people's lives. Yeah, And that we are almost called into that fear and we are manipulated by fear. Uh, I, I think so much in our society manipulates us, whether it's at the political level or at the consumerism level. We're called to constantly fear that we're not enough. Yeah, and I think that that sense of inadequacy and 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 a lack of peace with who we are. Yeah, is is what keeps us closed off, and and distanced from our heart. And and it's what, of course, psychology calls the egoic level of being. And one of the most seditious aspects of the ego is that it defends against love. Yeah. And so I think it's honestly accepting that I have been trained, and I, I say this me, and and I would accept, I would suggest others explore this honest realization. I have been trained to defend against my, uh, love in my life. I've been trained to see the world as separate. I've been trained to see others as alien, as not a part of me, as not a yeah. part of that which is. I've been trained to think of joy as a product of experiences rather than a part of me. I've been trained out of everything valuable and and real, and when you really come down to it, yeah. in, in this the way we've been trained in our culture. And I think that that honest admission then can can start to return us to that deep longing, because I believe every one of us, since we are love, we yearn to come back home. That there's never enough um, highs out there from buying things or um, from the other things we turn to for lesser highs like sex or food or substances. There's never enough of that to, to bring us what we really want. And that is to experience wholeness and love. And so I think it's that honest admission and then the training. Every day I practice attuning to my heart, warming my heart, um, hmm. looking through my heart at the day and, hmm. and, and seeking to stay anchored in that place. Hmm. Tell me how you do that. How do you warm your heart? Well, what I do is I place my awareness, and by the way, at the end of my book is kind of a written out um, heart opening exercise, if anyone's interested. I, I simply place my awareness at the center of my chest, and I relax, and I enter into meditation. 
And I, I simply at one point um, let that center relax. I sometimes encourage people to visualize that something's been covering the heart, whether it's like shutters or um, doors or something, and, uh, and, and, and just allowing an opening, just imagining that something's opening. Or sometimes it's like imagining that the heart is a tight bud that's been too tightly closed. And, and then just by our permission and our awareness centered there to, to begin to sense something opening and to just be with that, not trying to push it, just, just be with that, that subtle intention that, that, that I, that I open. And, and as this moves forth, and, and by the way, I think there are times when it's helpful to either be led through this by somebody who's already in tune, attuned to this, so that there's almost an induction phenomenon, or yeah. to listen to somebody guide them verbally who's in that state, because oftentimes that can be very powerful in, in helping us to yeah. open. And um, of course, I would have prepared by doing some deep breathing and releasing of fears. But just to continue that opening, uh, what most students report is a warmth begins to, to happen here, a vibration and a warmth. And with it, the beginnings of peace. Now, uh, what tends to also happen is that the, the, the old habits of thought come back in and want to deny it or... Uh, belittle it. But, you know, we just say peace, be still, and come back. Just like in meditation, we let those thoughts just arise and fall away. Coming back to that and being with that and, and letting it warm us and, and just basking in that. And what usually we notice is that eventually um, some more profound states of peace and equanimity and well-being emerge when we practice that. And the more one practices it, the more responsive, almost by intention, the, the heart responds with opening again. Um, and it's just practicing this chakra becoming more agile and, and available to bring us into an expanded level of awareness. Because with this, it's more than just a physical body phenomenon. With this comes an entirely new sense of, of, of life and a higher frequency of consciousness that opens up greater possibilities and realizations. Now, I'm curious, if someone's doing this practice, they're breathing into their heart, and maybe it's a, a bud that's opening and the petals are all opening. Whatever but, image. <laughs> yeah, whatever image works for yeah. them. But then they have this sense of like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. That's terrifying. There's no way I'm going to be that vulnerable, exposed, fragile. No way. What do they do with that? Well, I think that that's, that's a part of the old voice that thinks that love is dangerous that being vulnerable is weak. Love's not dangerous? Well, I have found that it's not. It's actually not. However, most people, we've been hurt, and most people have been betrayed or wounded in some way. And if that hasn't been resolved, and, and if the gift hasn't been discovered in it, then then that can get cast, those experiences can, can get cast in that way, and we can uh, resist it. Uh, but I believe that it's in our vulnerability and our openness that our real strength lies. It's in our heart that our real strength lies. To be able to bring our compassion to our own lives and to this world is is the highest path we can walk. And eventually, life is calling us to get around to that. Hmm. Now, you have a beautiful section of your book, really the whole second half 
of your book is dedicated to portals of transformation. Oh, yeah. And one of the portals that you offer that I wanted to talk with you about because I found it curious and I'm not quite sure I fully understand it has to do with judgment and (laughs) working, working with judgment in our life as a gateway to transformation. So I wonder if you could talk about that. How do we work with judgment when we feel it coming up judging other people? Let's, let's start there. Let's start with others. Yeah. Well, I want to first um, quickly distinguish between discernment and judgment. Yeah. I I feel that out of the, uh, the grist of our wisdom, um, that we, the fruits of our wisdom, we have the ability to discern and yeah. we should discern. We should discern um, the highest and best action that we could possibly take. We we have the capacity to discern if somebody has um, um, motives that aren't the purest and highest. And if we sense that either because we've experienced it before or intuitively or whatever, that discerning is important and I don't think we should uh, deny that. But then I'm speaking of the harsh and belittling judgments that separate another f- from us. Um, and that uh, cloak them in a, another way. And I think that also who hasn't experienced being judged yeah. in, a, in another way. And, and what happens is we we assume that because we know a person's past and, and are aware of certain behaviors and um, know what they look like and how they usually show up, that we are then um, empowered to brand them in a certain way. And... Uh, we all do it, and it's pretty typical, and we're, it's all done to us as well. What I, in, in really looking at myself as honestly as I can, I realized that I judge others from the basis of my own self-judgment. It's out of my own sense, at whatever level it's happening, of not being enough my own sense of, of inadequacy or unworthiness, my own sense of needing to be lifted up, it's out of that that I tend to lay that on or project that on to another. And so often I see then, I see myself reflected back to me in my judgments of another because another person is so much more than their past. I am so much more than my past. Whoever's listening is so much more than their past. We are so much more than our mistakes. We are so much more than the uh, verdicts that have been declared about us. And I think we are organic, changing, alive beings. My own self-judgment can keep me anchored and, and, and limited uh, rather than freeing me. So I've, I wrote that to, to give us the opportunity to look at how our judging of another is yearning for something. And what we're really deeply yearning for is assurance. The assurance that we are valuable, that we have more potential than we've yet expressed in whatever area matters to us, that we're vital beings. The assurance that our our life means something. And it's my sense that the, the proclivity to judge tends to fall away the more, the more we are placing ourselves in that sense of assurance. I want to give you an example because maybe you can help me understand it because this is actually occurring within a circle of people that I know, which is, you know, somebody is having an affair 
somebody's having an affair and thinks that she has every right to in her situation and it's not being honest. And other people are quite judgmental. You know, this is, you have a, a child, you're, this is not right for your family, this is, you know, wrong, you're lying, this is bad. And so I guess I, I'm a little confused about is that, that's not discernment, that's clearly judgment. Yeah. And it doesn't, it how does that really relate to the people who are judging? Are they they're looking for some kind of assurance? I don't quite see that. Or well, maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. Well, I would ask those judging what the intent of the judgment is. And, and I would suggest that the judgment comes from a place of needing to be right and of feeling that this person is wrong. And I would then ask the question, what do you think that person really needs? from you, apart from advice, by the way. What do they really need? And uh, perhaps what they really need is prayer. Perhaps what they need is a core of people who are willing to uh, set aside that tendency to judge and stand in a higher truth about this person. Know that something's, something is being explored here and worked out in her, her consciousness in her life that's so much more than this affair and also something remains in her that is valuable and and beautiful and holds the answers for her too now it's far more powerful to make that choice of standing in a higher truth for that person now of course if that person ever says, you know, I have misgivings, I've started down this path, I don't know what I'm doing, I've started into this affair and ask someone who cares sure. about them, then you can say, you know, I would worry about this, this, and this. And, but so often we judge where we're not, there's no chance we're going to be asked. And so I think we have to look at the intent there. And, and then, you see, because that comes from a place of truly regarding the person as on a journey bigger than this affair and that this affair is a part of, them setting themselves up for their next greater realizations in one way or another. And, and I get to then hold them in that kind of compassion and love and know the truth about them, that there's something that can guide them, that this, that this ultimately will lead to some kind of growth for them. Does that kind of help a little bit? It does. It, well, the idea of actually stepping back and praying, mm. stepping out of the fray, I'm curious what kind of prayer would you offer in a situation like that if this was something happening? You know, in what I would do world? is yeah. I would know that beyond her behaviors and whatever is going on within her, there's, there's a core of wholeness within her. That, that she is, as I write earlier in the book, a being of light. And, and of course, we all are in a journey of greater self-discovery in our life. And, and, and so I would know that she is whole, that, that, and I would affirm that she is protected and guided and that there's deep wisdom within her and, and that it's available for her to access. And I would surround her in my heart with love. And I would, I would know that she's unfolding in a way through this that is beyond my capacity to know. And I, so I would humbly release her to the higher path and, and that deeper source within her to guide her and hold her in light and love. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, one of the other portals to transformation that you offer in your book, This Life is Joy, is disease as oh, yeah. discovery, that we can approach disease as discovery. Mm -hmm. And I love 
the way that sounds when you can really do it. But I also imagine someone who at that point says, you know, Roger, you're a really great man, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a minister, so I don't want to say <laughs> what I think the person might say inside themselves. But, they, you know, I mean, it's pretty hard, it especially it if you're really suffering with a disease. And, I think and, it's the most difficult. Yeah. I, think, I think really when our, when our bodies are breaking down or there's something out of harmony, I think it's even more difficult than, than the deep emotional traumas of our lives. Um, I think it's probably the, the most difficult aspect of being in a human body at this time. Mm-hmm. And the, the intent of the book is, is, is basically to make everything in our life useful because I believe it is at some level. And uh, apart from the pain or discomfort, whatever the situation may be, I, I suggest in that that first of all, that there are healing energies available. And I believe that that healing can be possible um, th- within us, uh, in, of course, in the medical world, but I think that there are even greater healing potentialities within within the heart and within the beingness of a, of a person. I have had so many uh, cases of being privileged to witness individuals who um, came to a, a core realization in their life and, and saw their body situation shift. Um, uh, seen um, individuals fighting significant traumatic, traumatic even life-threatening illnesses, who who have made a huge change and in their life and and begun to speak with honesty and love, or or let go of something that wasn't fulfilling them, a career path or whatever it was, and often seen remissions occur. So I want to first of all voice that that our bodies are incredible. Uh, vehicles and they're basically intelligence and energy and they're coded to keep be strong and resilient and healing is possible especially when we introduce the spiritual energies uh, that are within us and the bottom line um, as Dwayne Elgin writes is our bodies are biodegradable vehicles for soul evolving experiences so that's what that's one of the main thrusts of that chapter is that many times the body is sending us messages, and I think I, if I remember there are three of them. The first is simply body messages. There have been times when my body um, couldn't take me anymore, when I was uh, so much into workaholism, um, which had a deeper um, challenge as I just earlier described, or when I wasn't eating correctly or I wasn't resting enough and things like that, the body often uh, will try to send us messages and then if it can't get through, um, we get sick. And and one of the basic messages is, you know, I'm strong and resilient and magnificent and you got to take care of me. Yeah. You know, like our, our, our cars or the vehicles yeah. we get around in, these are vehicles. So that's one of the messages. The other is awareness messages that oftentimes the body is reflecting back to us toxins in our own way of thinking our own dominant attitudes and emotions and, and uh, responses to life. And often the, the body, its, its ability, since it's an intelligent process to, to express itself in harmony, is disrupted by the frequencies of our own thinking, whatever they might be, or our own uh, mental emotional states. So often it's a mirror. The body is mirroring awareness states to us. And then the thirdly, I suggest that Oftentimes, the body is the vehicle for the soul, the, the core essence of us, to bring us messages. 
um, because we're not any better at listening to the soul than we are at listening to the body. Um, having a, I, I think it's possible, by the way, to have a, a closer relationship with the body, to listen to it. I think one the higher degree of mastery is is to tune into the body and 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 let it tell us more more what it wants to eat, what how much it needs to eat, and and when it needs rest. And I, I believe there's a response there. But then I I give, come back to the soul. Um, I think that we we so often live at the surface of our experience and our awareness that we don't meditate enough. We don't get still enough. We don't attune enough. Um, I'm speaking culturally here. Yeah. Um, we don't attune enough to the core um, truth of us, the, the core essence of us. Call it the soul, call it whatever word feels best. And um, so very often this authentic self of us has a hard time getting a word in edgewise. And so very often physical experiences, physical states, illnesses are the vehicle by which the soul seeks to get our attention. Because really, no matter what our current goals and agendas are in life, we're on a soul path here. I, I feel we're here to give things, learn things, evolve things at a cellular level. And uh, so, so often when we're off course, the body's the vehicle by which the soul gets a word in edgewise. And as I say in the book, sometimes it's messages like, it's time to play more and work less. Yeah. Sometimes it's the message, it's time to really return to love here. You've been in fear or separation or uh, isolation too long. Sometimes it's, it's time to let go of that security blanket of that job and do what you really want to do. Um, so many of these soul messages, it's time to speak your heart or it's time to open up again in, to the awe of life, to the wonder of creation rather than just seeing it as cold, hard stuff returning more to the mystery and, and the miracle of life. Sometimes sometimes illnesses are actually the way the soul calls us to some deeper and truer path. Sometimes it's also, since I believe that we are spiritual entities so much more than this body, sometimes disease, especially terminal ones, are the soul saying, this one's done. This lifetime's complete. And it's time now to spread our wings. It's time to move forward. And so I, I offered that chapter to remind me to not just see disease as something to get rid of as quick as possible, but to pause and say, what's here? What's going on here? And maybe I can get value from it. listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you talked about being a soul much more than the physical body, 
and a sense I got both from reading the book and from sitting with you is that you have a deep knowing, if you will, that there's a continuity beyond physical death. Yeah. And I'd like to know more about how that is a knowing for you. What in your internal experience has created that knowing? Well, there was an earlier time and then there have been more frequent times. But there have been times in um, extended periods of meditation and stillness where the knowingness of that which I really am, so much more than my history, my roles, my personality, my body, has become undeniable and indisputable to me. And there was a time when I was about six years old that I write about early in the book, where, uh, and at the time I didn't know what was happening to me, I, I was laying on my front lawn, my dad had just mowed the lawn, and I was just looking up at the clouds. And in that moment, I became what I was looking at. I, I was no more. I was the clouds, I was the sun, I was the sky. At one level, I thought I'd died. And I, but, but for, and I don't know how long I was in that state. But when I, when it, when I came more into my local self-awareness, I remember as a child having to grab the grass. I was, I was vibrating uh, so intensely. And I hid that away. I was scared. I, I thought maybe something was wrong with me. But from that moment on, I began to have a sense of the greater parameters of life. It was as though that, and, and, Later on, much later on, when I was studying spiritual things and studying the experiences of the mystics, and I, I, I read, remember reading about the, the dissolving of the subject-object dichotomy, uh, and, and, I re, and I realized, my God, in my own way, I stumbled into that as, as a young boy, evidently not having so many barriers between me, not having heaped on the sense of I'm a separate self, I am a personality and I am my roles and my stuff and all this that we do. And, and I guess I must have been available to something at that time. And then I began to understand it later on. And ever since that time, it's what impelled me into doing the work I do and seeking to continue to grow and uh, follow this path. And... Um, that's when I came to know things I don't know how I know. It's, it's how I came to know that there is a seamless unity that, that undergirds all of life, that love is the reality of life. Um, and it's, it's how I have a knowingness I, I can't logically defend, but in my own heart, it's how I know that I have been before and will be again. And, and of course, then I've, I've studied with individuals who, who teach about many lifetimes and things, and that's always tantalizing. But what I found was it really resonated with a knowingness in me that is beyond anything that I acquired intellectually. So that's that's kind of how, how it is with me. And it gives me a dabbled little... in past life regressions and things like uh -huh. that. But but those aren't as those aren't as fundamental to me as those times in the deep, prolonged stillness, as well as that early time for me. Those times in the prolonged stillness, I presume they're periods of meditation or something like yeah, that. Yeah, very long meditation. In the in the more recent part of yeah. your life, I'm I'm curious to know more about that. Like, if you could describe for me, if that's possible, what 
that experience is like? You know, in those times of deep stillness, yeah. um, there have been those a few times, peak moments, where realizations have simply emerged. I don't know if it's clear seeing. I don't know what you would call it. Realizations have emerged, not not thought out, because, of course, in the deeper times of meditation, hopefully the mind is poised and still and quiet and we're with our being. We are our being. We're just being. And and there are times when what we, we come to realize the nature of that being in those still moments, the being that we are, the activity of being that we are. And its qualities become apparent at a, at a deep knowingness level. Again, not an intellectual level, but a deep knowingness level. That's the best way I can okay. explain this. Now, one of the other themes that I felt throughout reading This Life is Joy is that the universe is good. Mm. God is good, if you will. That there's this deep bedrock of goodness in being uh, alive, in being here. And, you know, that's actually my inner experience, and it's something I've felt my whole life. However, I've had really good friends who are more scientifically oriented or super inquisitive by nature, and they've really poked and prodded at that and have said, you know, look, Tammy, you know, in my experience, life isn't anything we could call it. It's neutral or it's both good and evil. And, you know, you you like this goodness thing. It fits and it's your sort of like naive, happy person thing, but come on. And I realize when I talk to people like that, there's like this divide I don't know how to cross. And so I usually just drop it. So I'm curious, what do you feel when somebody says, you know, I'm not convinced that life is inherently at its true basic nature good. In fact, it might be neutral. You know, our words sometimes get us into the most trouble around this. Yeah. Um, When we say good, uh, we often then evoke a sense of, yeah, but it could be bad. So we think of it in terms of the opposites and the polarities that we're used to. I, I, here's a metaphor. Uh, if, if we think of uh, life most commonly lived as the surface levels of an ocean, and there are times when the surface level of an ocean is very placid, and then there are times it is churning big yeah. time. But down below, at a depth level, it's not. It's neither placid nor churning. It, it just is there, yeah. supporting this activity of the either the, the peacefulness or the the angst and the um, the churning, and I, I so it's where am I looking? A- am I in a debate about yeah the the surface churnings, the birth death cycles there? You know, you watch a film and you see um, a lion devastating a, a an antelope in the in the African jungle, and you say, where's the good in that? You know, th- but down below there there's something that is. I believe supporting that dynamic of life at the surface that is the wholeness of life and 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 we come as we as we in meditation and spiritual practice go more to that deeper level we come to know that all of this up there there are times we might define it as good sometimes it's painful sometimes it's awful and yet it's just the play of life upon itself it's just the unfolding of conditions and life supporting itself. And and even the, the lion um, 
feasting on the, the dead antelope. There's an elegance to that if you see it in a different perspective. Now, of course, somebody might say, yeah, but what about the antelope's perspective? Mm -hmm. And yet, if you look at the bigger perspective, that is a life continuing to energize life in its, its own progress. So I, when I talk about life as good, it's not choosing good and over evil. I'm suggesting that there is there's a depth of beingness infusing and supporting all of life. And it is simply what it is. And it is whole and it is complete. And that's what I'm referring to. But what if somebody said even that beingness, even that depth of the ocean, how can you call it good? What if it's kind well, I of call it a neutral? Good, again, for lack of perhaps better words, yeah. um, a, an absolute good for which there's no opposite evil. It's, it's, it, the, the reason I call it good is that it is unfolding itself, I believe, or, again with quotes around the itself. It's not a separate it, but it's un, unfolding out of that which it is and ever shall be. And it's not, it's not against itself and there's nothing working against it. And it's bringing forth the dance of life to express itself. And uh, so, again, when we go beyond our assessments of our experience of life, we find that life is simply unfolding and celebrating itself in all of its ways. And certain life forms arise for a short time, and they celebrate life, like this picture of the, of the, the, the pelican or the bird that behind you there. Yeah. It, it, it's being magnificently that until that expression is over, and it falls away back into the invisible essence of life and life arises in another visible form and and ultimately if we can back away from our judgments of things we see it as just wow this magnificent symphony of being and that doesn't mean that at our experience level we don't have our ups and downs none yeah. of this denies that yeah it's talking about a deeper joy and i actually think of it as joy that life in its depth is joy and that we can experience some of that within ourselves. And in the book, I distinguish between the pleasure-pain syndrome and that a lot of our culture and our society is very much bent on manipulating and orchestrating pleasure experiences. Yeah. And usually those are at the superficial level of conditions, that it's a happiness and a pleasure that is derived because things turn out a certain desired way. And we do everything we can do to manipulate that. And when that doesn't happen, we tend to experience pleasures opposite at the surface level, and that is pain. And uh, and with that, we, we that's unacceptable. So then the tendency in our society is to find ways to numb that pain. And, uh, of course, the ways are many. And, of course, that, I believe, is what sponsors the widespread addictive tendencies of our culture. And not just substance addictions, but the many addictions that are available to us. And... When I speak of joy, I'm talking about something deep within the wholeness of life that we can put a taproot down into that is so much more than that that surface plain pain pleasure dance, so much more than being happy about something, that, that we have a deep participation in the joy of, of the being itself, of being itself. Yeah. And that we can learn to dance with that. I tell a story about the Israelites in one level of their captivity, Babylonian captivity, where they were sorely oppressed, suffering. 
and working and and at night when they go back to their encampment and weren't under the watchful eyes of their captors that they would steal down to the river where they'd hid harps and lyres in the in the reeds and the willows and they'd take them out and they would dance and it's like freeing that something within them so much more than their servitude and their suffering and 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 I remind myself that when life in being human gets difficult there's still a depth in me that's willing to dance if I'm willing to let it. it then, I guess the question is, do I have a harp in the willows in my life? Now, Roger, one other topic that I want to talk with you about, and it, in a way it circles back to how we began our conversation by me asking if you'd help me understand some of the ideas in science of mind that I've found a little challenging. Mm -hmm. And realizing that you're evolving those ideas in new ways in your work and in your book. But it has to do with working with thoughts and the power of thought uh -huh. in our life. And you have a section of your book, This Life is Joy, where you talk about ideas being substance. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'd love clarification on is how to work with thinking in a good and positive way that doesn't feel like a manipulation or some kind of surface level. Trying to manifest the, yeah. the law of attraction and all that, that kind of thing. Wonderful. Yeah, so how do we work with thoughts? Well, first of all, uh, there are two chapters that partner with each other. Yeah. One is the, this world is consciousness, and the second is this idea is substance. And in this world is consciousness, we draw not only from ancient wisdom, but um, modern quantum science to bring forth the realization that reality isn't fundamentally material. It's invisible. It's characterized by energy and and information and love. And that the, the, there's this invisible, infinite field of potentiality that is revealing and, em and emerging as forms and experiences and cosmos and all manner of matter in the universe known and unknown is what the ancient wisdom, uh, the ageless wisdom has suggested, and now what quantum science seems to be revealing to us. And so with that, as, as a sense that reality is basically invisible and it moves temporarily into visible form and then back in, into the invisible energies, and um, that, that we then bring forth the idea that ideas themselves are not just airy-fairy passing things, but that ideas have the capacity to be the building blocks of expression and of form. And, and, of course, we know at a practical level that any invention began as an idea in somebody's head. Yeah. Whether it was those couple of guys in the garage who tinkering and all of a sudden an Apple computer gets born and et cetera. Ideas are the genesis for all creation. And if we even go more into the metaphysical dimension, we suggest, I suggest, and, and others uh, like us suggest that the ideas most deeply held as our truth are actually helping form our experience because we too are centers of passageways, if you will, wherein the invisible is becoming the visible in our lives. That in this way, we are what you might call a co-creator with the infinite to reveal life forms. So the whole idea that an idea once activated and fully accepted within us becomes a template 
for experience and 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 form actually calls in forms calls in experiences is what this is about as one looks at how can i work more masterfully with my life it's to look at what deep conclusions have i arrived at about me that have been calling in experiences to announce those deep conclusions to give me input about the way I've sized up my life, the mental models, as it were, that I've created about my life. In that chapter, I talk about the stories that we tell, the old, the cold, and the told. It's like the old stories from our past, the, the cold stories that are heartless and demeaning and uh, without compassion for ourselves or others, the, the told stories, things that have been the way we've been labeled. And, and that we keep telling those stories, we keep, we keep anchoring our identity in those. And and that our identity tends to call in experiences and 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 also express through our body that 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 ideas are a very powerful creative seed in this life and i think the way that's best to work with this is just not so much to necessarily say okay i'm going to create a new seed of of this wealth that i want and i'm going to accept it and go for it that Although is if, that is though the first place i think a lot of people go yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, until we have arrived at peace with ourselves and a sense of who we really are, the attempts to manipulate conditions are um, either futile or not fully satisfying or not even really lasting in our lives. I think that the thoughts we most need to look at is how do what, what quality of relationship do I have with me? with myself? What what sense of relationship do I have with the rest of life? Have I healed and forgiven my past? Do I, do I have a sense of open-heartedness for myself and for others? It's when we get whole with ourselves, right with ourselves and with life itself, that then we sort of automatically begin to see the rest of our life uplifted. And again, nothing in this suspends us from change or painful experiences in our life, but our our reservoir of response to those even goes to a higher level. As we've done healing work with the deep thoughts we've encoded within us. Okay, and so let's just still say that somebody says, okay, I can activate a thought and then that will turn into a physical reality in my life and the mm -hmm. thought I want to activate is we won't pick the wealth one even though I think that's the one place where most people go sure. but let's say I want to have a my prince uh, or princess how about that yeah I was going to go there that's the next <laughs> the next you, you know exactly where the public is going I want a fabulous we're an immediate partner. gratification um, society and we want we want things before we have expanded our consciousness to be worthy of those things so that's an immature use of that principle. Uh, what we really can work on is transmuting the whole environment of our inner life, wherein automatically we can start to attract beautiful people in our life. When I finally opened my heart and got over my fear of love, you, everything in my life shifted, and I didn't have to do a thing about it. I didn't have to take a specific thought and send it out into the universe. You know, most of the people who work at that immature level are actually still fear-driven. 
they feel like they, they, they really aren't worthy of that. So I'm going to take this idea and use this process to get this in my life, which I'm not naturally generating right now. The real question is, why am I not naturally generating this in my life right now? And let that take me deeper into what's, what's my real be deep belief about me and my worthiness? What's the state of my consciousness, my, my love, my, my vibrancy, the, my inner peace? You know, we do that deep healing and, and get in touch with some of the, some of the old thoughts, misguided stuff we bought in, the, the false self we've constructed. And we start taking that apart and, and standing in a sense of love and light within ourselves. You know, it's very similar to what Jesus is supposed to have said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, which, of course, he located within us. And all these things will be added unto you. Yeah. That's the approach that I recommend. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Okay, I just have two final questions for you. You know, Roger, I have to say, I don't know very many ministers, people who run big churches, but <laughs> you're definitely one of my favorites. You're such a fabulous you. human, and I think what you're doing is so incredible. And here in our state of Colorado, you run this huge mile-high church. And I'm curious to know, during a time when many churches are shrinking and losing members, and in general churches seem not to be bringing in new congregants as people are becoming, quote-unquote, spiritual but not religious and, and yeah. not going to church. Yeah. What, in a nutshell, would you say is your dream or your vision for Mile High Church to be a relevant force in people's lives in the decades to come? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, I want us to help the cresting wave of healing consciousness I want us to be a place of support as our hearts are broken by so much of what's going on in the world, such that um, we don't fall into skepticism and discouragement and thus close our hearts again to the, to the potentialities we all have. I believe that all of this stuff going on in the world is our wake-up sign. It's calling us to see what the embedded fear and sense of separation in the collective consciousness of humankind continues to bring forth. It has for centuries. And, and we're called to use this well. A dear friend, Barbara Marks Hubbard, that I quote in the book, she says, our crises are our birth. And it's to be a part, I, I see this spiritual community of Mile High Church as being a part of the many who are trying to midwife a, a birthing of a of a more expansive consciousness you know the birthing of of the compassion that is holiness the dalai lama keeps calling us to to be our our watchword in this world and you know all who are listening we have to take a look at yes the heartbreak we feel about these things but yes also the opportunity can we look upon the things going on with compassion compassion for how we the human experiment within this divine life continues to struggle with fear and with with a sense of estrangement and and can we bring more of that forth in our own life so i don't know how i got off on that but it's i i i simply want us to be a place where people can discover that they are powerful contributors to this life that by working with their own healing 
and their own reintegration that that they they are a part of something more and maybe you feel it in your work tammy I, i'm wondering that that there's that there's an even more intense yearning now seeking to to be a part of awakening not just for one's own personal benefits but because it seems so we seem so pregnant right now and ready mm-hmm. to give birth mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so we we uh, we have a large spiritual community we got branded as church a long time ago and got so well known as that that we still have that moniker and yet um we're really a center um that has departed from a lot of the old trappings of of church and in fact our motto is it's different here and we we seek to help people do the healing work we're talking about we we're very much getting more into community service work and uh, um, relief work and we want to be we want to play our positive role whatever it can be i use that word again but our beneficial role sitting here with you i feel very positive right <laughs> Okay, my final question. Okay. This program is called Insights at the Edge. And part of what I'm always curious to know is what someone's personal edge is, as okay. in the kind of growth challenge that they're working with, really, truth be told, if they're willing to share it. What are you really working with? What's your edge, your growing edge, if you will? Well, can I share two or is there just one? Oh, no, you can have two. <laughs> you can have three. First Sorry. of all, as I um, stand here at 62, I'm working more with the reality of aging. And I'm just looking at the spiritual opportunities with that and, and seeking to, as I we talked earlier, seeking to really listen to my body more and honor it and support it because um, I'm not done here, at least as far as I know. And I, I so I want to remain vital. and But also... As I, a lot of my friends and congregants have dealt with parents uh, who have been transitioning and um, leaving us, and or being put in assisted care, and 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 other individuals who feel that on the horizon, it's just a real opportunity again for insight and compassion um, for me. And I think the other one is the leading edge for me is more in the area we touched on briefly, and that is. This, the real sense of the expanded parameters of life. Mm. You know, the founder of our movement, religious science, science of mind, Ernest Holmes, he had a great evolution in his work. He went from a more simplistic approach to becoming, I think, really a mystic in his own right in his last days. And at one time, just a year or so before he passed, he he was dedicating one of our centers and 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 he had this experience wherein he he said the veil is thin i see he he had this altered experience and and i'm feeling that that's beckoning to me a little bit that that i've i've had moments where i've sensed that that there's more going on around us than we're seeing um more spirit forms and um guides and entities around us than than we are usually aware of and of course, now that's where people get really kind of weirded out, and they think, "Oh my gosh, where have you gone?" But um, life is so much more than I can pick up with any of my senses or my intellect or any of that. So I'm just surrendering and letting life show me more of its its mysteries. Beautiful, beautiful. Trying not to control it too. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for this conversation. Really beautiful. And thank you for all of your good work and your openness and transparency. I really appreciate that. You even talked about spirit beings and entities here at the end. You know? I know it. True to Insights at the Edge. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Bless you for what you're doing, Tam. Roger Teal, the author of a beautiful new book, This Life is Joy, Discovering the Spiritual Laws to Live More Powerfully, Lovingly, and Happily. Thanks for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.